by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Bruce, a little later on, we're going to get to early signing day, which is coming up on Wednesday. Uh, some of the coaching hires, including a very unusual one recently. Let's get to some of your emails. But first, uh, Joe Burrow, as expected, won the Heisman Saturday night, broke the record for most or for highest percentage of first place votes and, and overall votes. Um, we can finally say who we voted for. And uh, you surprised some people by announcing who your runner-up was. I did. So, you know, look, in reality, I think this was the easiest Heisman vote that I've ever had in terms of in a decade plus of doing it. Joe Burrow was the runaway number one. Uh, I'd say there was probably a half dozen guys I've looked at for the two and three spots. But the more I thought about it, I went back and look, I, I think I saw every guy who was going to be considered uh, up close and, you know, did one of their games as well as talk to their coaches. The guy who I came away saying, you know what, I think I'm going to vote number two was Panay Sewell. And I know a lot of people are looking like, wait, you can't have an offensive lineman. Well, look, if, you know, like our colleague Andy Staples, I think, was one of several people who had Derek Brown from Auburn. Uh, who's a great defensive player, uh, defensive lineman on his list. And here's my thinking on that. Uh, Panay Sewell, if you talk to anybody who is who has either uh, coached him or coached against him or you know basically seen him, he's hands down the best offensive lineman in college football. Uh, he dominated every week. I went back and spoke to his coaches. I mean, you know, consistently his assignment grade was like 98, 95, 96, 97. And he finished off the year in a strong, in a really impressive fashion against the best probably defense on the West Coast and the best pass rusher on the West Coast, Bradley and I. He completely shut him down in the Pac-12 title game and Oregon just ran through Utah. And so I, you know, ended up talking to Mario Cristobal a little more and about him and you know Cristobal's been around great linemen certainly at Alabama and at Miami where he's a coach and a player and he talks about him just in ways you don't usually hear coaches talk about offensive linemen obviously he's 6'6 335 and he's super athletic but also he's like his instincts and he compared him to Frank Gore and Ray Lewis in terms of instincts, in terms of and how that relates, and just the ability of reacting to a to something that happens within a play, having the the foresight, but also the athleticism to adjust, where a lot of offensive linemen just can't do it. And so for me, I was like, you know what, I'm going to make this guy number two on my ballot. I had Justin Fields from Ohio State number three. Um, you know, at some point I was thinking Chase Young was going to be my guy. I didn't end up deciding to do that. Um, what was your two and three on your ballot? Well, first of all, I got no problem with you voting for Panesu. I don't know why anybody would. Uh, I feel like, obviously, it's important to get the winner right, to, to put a lot of thought into it and make sure you're 100% sure this guy was the most outstanding player. I don't. I think you can use the other two spots to do just about whatever you want. Now, I did think Justin Fields was the, by the end was the clear number two, 
to, to throw for 40 touchdowns, run for 10 touchdowns, throw one interception the entire season on a trick play was, was unbelievable. And then there were probably a dozen guys that you could put number three, and that's okay. That's fine. Uh, I went with Jonathan Taylor, and I will fully acknowledge that it was a career achievement nod. Um, I'm not 100% sure I would say – I'm not sure I would say with 100% confidence that he was the best running back in college football this year because I think you could make an argument for – uh, Chupa Hubbard or uh, uh, J.K. Dobbins or Travis Etienne. But and we talked about this, I think, on the podcast last week. Three seasons, 6,000 career yards, already the number five rusher of all time. And it's just it just felt wrong to me that he would have that kind of career and never go to New York. And as it turned out, he still didn't. He finished fifth. Um, I'm struck by the fact that what you said and I hadn't thought of is you, you may be one of the only people out of the 900-something voters who is in a position to see all these guys in person because most uh, TV people even are only doing certain conferences. Um, and, and I know Fox is that case, but then you went and saw Joe Burrow in person in the SEC championship. So that's a very unique perspective. Well, I just also think one thing that if you're being incredulous about having an offensive lineman on there, keep in mind this, and this is not meant as a slight towards any defensive lineman or any other position, quite honestly, but those other positions usually sub out. The quarterback doesn't, but you would get uh, teams will play 8, 9, 10, 12 defensive linemen. So if you ha- you know, you're going to be fresh all the time. The offensive line you rarely see an offensive lineman subbing out in the middle, you know, from one series to the next. And so for him to be as consistently dominant as he was, um, I think is noteworthy. Again, and some of this also goes to some things that, you know, in addition to seeing these guys, you know, I'm in the middle of those production meetings talking to coaches and players. And Mario Cristobal, we talked about Kayvon Thibodeau, who we're going to talk about signing day in a couple of minutes, but... Uh, last year was arguably the number one recruit in the country. And one of the things in his development was just, you know, basically getting humbled every day because he has to go up against Panay Sewell, who is such a dominator and so physical. And that kind of, as Cristobal said, iron sharpens iron, you know, good on good, that makes the team better. It certainly makes the players better. And, you know, that also kind of factors into it. Again, to me, Joe Burrow was the clear number one. I don't want people to sit there and go, oh, I voted, you know, Panay Sewell to win the Heisman. No, I voted Joe Burrow to win the Heisman. But for people who are like either the people who are like incredulous, I just don't think they either follow football closely enough to, to feel that way. Maybe they don't know who, who some of the Oregon players are. But again, this is the team that won the Pac-12 title. Um, and by the way, he... Who are, just to interrupt, who are, quote, these people, like random people on Twitter? Yeah, I mean, I just kind of, like, usually I try to reply to some stuff on on Twitter. This, I kind of looked at a few people, and I was like, eh, I'm not even going to, you know, get into this. Because it's like, look, everybody's entitled to their opinion. And, you know, that's that's all well and good. But it's like, you know, if if, if you're telling me that Kyle Whittingham would be, like, apoplectic, that I'd be like, okay, I'd be surprised. But, I mean, he would know. Um, or pretty much anybody who's faced Sewell. Or, you know what, some of the NFL scouts that I speak to before games also. Um, 
So anyway, I didn't want to go into a too big of a soapbox, but like I saw people going, yeah, you only voted him number two so you could write a column about it. It's like, yeah, because I've made a career on being the hot takes guy. That's not what I do. So sorry about that. But anyway. If Panay Sewell, it should be noted, is only a sophomore, he'll be back next year. You may have just inadvertently launched his uh, 2020 Heisman campaign because offensive linemen, for the most part, they only get better. Uh, that's not a position where you would expect somebody to have a drop-off the next season. But uh, it's very hard for offensive linemen to get this kind of recognition because there's no stats. Like, you went and actually you went and, and put in the work to find out what his grades were. But they're not readily available. Well, there's there are, there are stats. I mean, there are stats. Yeah, and it's not like, you know, look, when you and I grew up, if a player came, you know, baseball player came up to bat, we'd see three stats. Home runs, RBI, batting average. And then there's now more advanced stats and i think with offensive linemen you'll get that with knockdowns and pressures but you you said the key word they're readily available and i do think readily available is something that you know look you and i've had discussions about this as it relates to other players some things that you have to either make calls about or drill down a little deeper that sometimes is a little more revealing about just how productive or uh how great a player may be yeah you can't go on cfbstats.com and get all the game by game grades of offensive linemen around the country in fact i would say one flip side uh you know not readily available stat i was i was not surprised jalen hurts was a heisman finalist i was very surprised he was the runner-up and the reason is turnovers he had so many down the stretch and and frankly almost cost them a couple games but uh and in the past that has hurt like I feel like the reason Deshaun Watson didn't win a Heisman was because he threw a lot of interceptions uh, in his last season. But fump, that he fumbles lost is not – you go on any college football stat site, it does not show how many fumbles the players lost. So if you're just looking at – if you're a voter and you're just looking at his season stats, you're going to see interceptions, which was seven, which is a reasonable number. You're not going to see the other six fumbles. So uh, And then his passer rating is extremely high. So Interesting. Because there's definitely some randomness to the Heisman. Uh, Before we move on quick, I want to ask you something. So obviously almost nobody saw Joe Burrow, especially at this time last year. Joe Brady was still with the Saints, everything. Um, We've had this happen quite a bit in this decade where guys completely come off the board to win the Heisman. And maybe this is a little bit of a hedging here. But who would be the biggest wild card? We're not talking about Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields. To me, those guys are going to be the favorites going in. Give me somebody who's like a way off the grid, uh, needle in a haystack name to throw out there who you think could, could win the Heisman. But if you could see that coming now, then it wouldn't be I'm trying so to make the you radar. look prescient still. Yes. I mean, an obvious one, given radar. the uh, uh, recent Heisman track record of Oklahoma quarterbacks would be Spencer Rattler, who, has, who was redshirting mm-hmm. as a freshman this season. And we'll probably be in a position to uh, put up those kind of numbers next year. Who do you got? You know, even if I said Keaton Slovis, who's the USC quarterback, he's not far enough off the radar. No, he made it on those <laughs> those list of you, you gotta you gotta find somebody who was the equivalent of. I mean, Joe Burrow was a what fifty seven, fifty eight percent passer last year. Like, you need to go down toward the bottom of the passer rating chart and say like. This quarterback X is going to blow up next year. Ian Book. Yeah, but the Notre Dame quarterback almost always finds his name on that list. 
What if Jake Fromm rebounds from his nightmare junior season to have a Heisman-esque senior season? Uh, yeah, I mean, that would be an interesting storyline. Aha, uh, I've got one. I know you're going to say you're going, you're going to say that Mike Bajakian's new protege. No, absolutely not. Okay. This is a player who, as a sophomore this season, completed 59.7% of his passes for a uh, four and eight football team. DTR. You're going to say DTR. Dorian Thompson Robinson has his huge junior season, leads UCLA to the Rose Bowl, and wins the Heisman. You heard it here first. All right, Stu. That you know what? That's I asked you to do something bold, and that is look. DTR got way better. He's obviously a, a really people have seen him. He's a dynamic runner as well. Um, that program is due for a big step. Maybe you're on to something, Stu. You know who actually also qualifies for this probably that I would not have guessed early in the season is Sam Ellinger. After the disappointing season he had, what if he came back next year and had a Heisman season? That wouldn't shock me at all, by the way. I mean, I'm, I might be the biggest Sam Ellinger believer outside of Austin, Texas, but that wouldn't shock me at all either. Um, what about 86th rated passer, 57% completions, Bo Nix? No, I mean, I think, I mean, look, he came in with a ton of recruiting hype. Um, you He's know, got like, Chad Morris now as his OC. Yeah. Um, you know, like guys like that, you know, Brock Purdy or somebody who's like, okay, he's, he, you know, you see good things from him. It wouldn't surprise you if, like, then all of a sudden his team breaks through. Um, I don't know. I think I would actually say so that this, the Joe Burrow mold, I would also, um, I mean, Carson Palmer is another guy who comes to mind who... who the difference between Carson Palmer, though, and Joe Burrow was Carson Palmer came into college as a huge recruit. You know, he was five-star everything. If there was a five-star, he was a he was that guy. And NFL scouts knew about him because he had a huge arm. I mean, Joe was not that guy who anybody was touting that way. So what I was about to say is that uh, this mold of like guy who was pretty ordinary one year and then really improves the next is actually pretty rare. It's usually either um, if it, it's usually one of two. It's the guy who who already was pretty accomplished, or it's a guy who flat out hadn't played. You know, Kyler Murray hadn't really been the starter before winning the Heisman. Um, Lamar Jackson had barely started before he won the Heisman. Jameis Winston and Johnny Manziel were, were redshirt freshmen. So Spencer Rattler, of the names I said, would probably fit the mold more closely than some of these uh, Dorian Thompson-Robinson types. But By the way, just one, one quick random thing. When they were introducing everybody, man, it's like seeing a ghost when Johnny's up there at the end. I mean, he's the guy. This is what Eric Crouch was last decade, the guy who is the only guy from that decade, right, because everybody else is, is, is playing in the NFL. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, that whole show. I think is um, awkward. It's just one big awkward show. Like I have no other way to put it. They're doing what they got to do, but I don't know. It's it can be between the former winners and just how slow paced it is. Um, I don't know. I'd rather it would just be like a half hour show. Let's just get right to it. Okay. All right. Well, let's get to the rest of the podcast. Um, we wanted to do a quick shout out to somebody who played earlier in the day before the Heisman ceremony, and that would be Malcolm Perry, Navy's quarterback, who went off as Navy ends a three-year losing streak to Army. He went for over 300 yards, 
a record, a rushing re- Army Navy rushing record, and also set the career Army Navy rushing record for th- for his three performances. I don't know if, how many people remember this at this point. Malcolm Perry, as a freshman, was a guy who they pulled out of the stands because they had an emergency with uh, uh, quarterback injuries. He was a scout teamer, and they literally like pulled him out of the stands and put him into the game. And and here we are, three years later, he's going to go down as one of the all time great players for that program and in that rivalry. Uh, a couple interesting things about Malcolm Perry. He ended up finishing this, the regular season right now as the nation's number two leading rusher behind Chuba. He's actually ahead of uh, the aforementioned Jonathan Taylor and J.K. Dobbins at this point, at least in terms of rushing yards per game. Here is a stat that I thought was very cool for him. Uh, in the fourth quarter of games, he averages over nine yards a carry. I think that speaks to kind of like what they do and why they're so good at it. Um, I would not at all be surprised, by the way, if Malcolm Perry ends up on an NFL roster down the road. I just think he's that good. I mean, you see the change of direction, and he's a he's a fun player to watch. And obviously, that was a fun game to. Uh, it's always a it's always a fun game to get the the days build up as it does. Uh, Stu, a lot of people say they should delay the voting until after the bowl games. Perhaps they should be at least delaying it until after the Army Navy game because I bet he would get some. You're right; he's now number two rusher in the country, ahead of Jonathan Taylor, J.K. Dobbins, A.J. Dillon, uh, Travis Etienne. He'd probably get some votes. Yeah, um, and so look, there's been a bunch of uh, there was a bunch of more coaching hires. I wanted to ask you one you liked in this past week and one you didn't like. Well, I thought we saw the strangest. It's been kind of a, a year of strange coaching hires, but the. By far the strangest is Colorado State hiring Steve Adazio. Just on the surface, you would say, why on earth are they hiring a guy with no connection to that part of the country who was basically a 500 coach in his seven years at BC and even going back to Temple? Like his, he is a career 500 coach. Uh, he is the definition of— he never, he never had a winning record in ACC play in seven ouch. years, which in some ways I think is a credit to BC for giving him that length of time. Bruce, you talk to a lot of assistant coaches who are uh, trying to move up in the business and maybe even are at the point where they are trying to get their first head coaching job. How do they feel when they see Steve Adazio being given not just a a third chance, really, uh, rather than them hiring somebody who's up and coming? Uh, You know, look, I think you're right. I think it it is kind of a surprising hire. I think it's surprising in that like you pointed out, you know, he really has never been in that part of the country. So it's not like, you know, where he seemed like a, a geographical fit was where he came from in the Northeast. And now you're going to put him out there. And who knows, maybe, maybe he will have made a bunch of changes from what he did at BC. By the way, BC is like, that's a job where a lot of people have won. Now, Frank Spaziani didn't win big, but everybody else there before was winning eight, nine, some 10 games, 10 games. And he really wasn't able to break through. I mean, I think uh, they were happy with with how he ran the program off the field. Um, now, look, I know you, as you said, some of the players weren't th- former players weren't thrilled with some of that. But um, I don't know. It was just kind of like one of those hires. You just kind of like kind of roll your eyes at it, and we'll see if he can get it going there. Uh, I did think if I was a BC fan, this was the hire I thought was the was the best one was to go. From Adazio, who was, you know, kind of, it felt like just kind of flatlining a little bit there to bring in Jeff Halfley, who I think is a, is a real home run hire for them. He's the Ohio State defensive coordinator, and I think he will do really well. 
Um, you know, you mentioned, you know, we we're talking about Urban Meyer a little bit. You know, his name has been mentioned for the Dallas Cowboy job. He has talked about it. He did Colin Coward's show. I don't know. It could have been a month ago where he talked about it. You know, he was seen with the Redskins. I wouldn't think, no matter who it is, whether it would be Lincoln Riley or, or Matt Rule or whoever, I mean, to me, you, that's, a, that's a rough job to go be Daniel Snyder's head coach. I wouldn't see that being the case. Now, if Urban Meyer's offered the Dallas Cowboy job, who knows? I mean, I, I didn't think Urban Meyer would be coming back to coaching um, for another year at the earliest even. But, you know, the NFL is a different animal. I'm sure it's intriguing. How do you think he would do as an NFL head coach? I mean, just not specific to him, but in general, the hit rate for college coaches going to the NFL is not very good. I mean, Nick Saban couldn't do it. Uh, Steve Spurrier couldn't Nick do Saban it. Nick Saban didn't do it for very a long. Of, like, of, wasn't, he wasn't a disaster like like Spurrier was, like Lou Holtz was. I mean, I, I think some of that is, you know, if he had kept coaching a little longer, I mean, I think he was on the right track. So I, I don't, you know, I think we shouldn't lump him in with the other two guys there. Pete Carroll's kind of been an exception on both ends. Like, he was the rare NFL coach, primarily NFL coach, who goes to college and has massive success and then turned right around and, and I don't know if at that point you can serve an out, a college coach or an NFL coach or both, but, you know, obviously that hire has worked out tremendously well for uh, Seattle. I thought Dan Wilkin wrote a good column about this. Basically, what about Urban Meyer would suggest that he would be a successful NFL coach? When you look at the things that he is known for, first of all, tremendous recruiter, that's irrelevant. Tremendous motivator of young players, that I think anybody would tell you is completely different than what it takes to motivate professional athletes. Um, and, he, and then, you know, Cliff Kingsbury gets the job because he runs a scheme that NFL teams are infatuated with right now. I think at one time, Urban, certainly when he came from Utah to Florida, Maybe even Florida to Ohio State was known as a real innovator offensively. But I don't think by the end that was really his MO either. Like, I don't think he would go to the NFL and install some sort of revolutionary system. So could he be successful? Sure. But I'm not sure what, like, what makes an NFL team think, other than the fact that he's just a really big name, that he would be the college coach that is the exception. And remember, he has never spent a day in the NFL. It's not like... Like Matt Rule has spent some time in the NFL. He's never been in the NFL. Back to the podcast in a second. We talk about physical fitness a lot, but there's another side of the game that's just as important. We're talking about mental fitness. Calm, the number one app for sleep and meditation, has teamed up with LeBron James to help you train your mind. LeBron and Calm know that your mind is like any other muscle in your body. And Calm can help you train your brain so you sleep better, have less stress, and perform at your best. And if you head to calm.com slash audible, you'll get 40% off a Calm premium membership. For a limited time, our listeners can join LeBron in using Calm with a 40% discount to an annual membership at calm.com slash audible. Unlock content to help you focus, ease stress, and sleep better. Get started at calm.com slash audible. That's calm.com slash audible. Yeah, look, I, I, I'm with you. To, you know, like the motivational piece could still be, you know, could still be tweaked to make it work there. And, you know, it, it is a, it's a much different dynamic where you're, 
you're the boss in college. It's, I think you have to work, you're working with grown men. I mean, it is different. I don't know how well it would work. I'd be very curious. I mean, look, Steve Spurrier was an offensive whiz in college and that didn't translate into the NFL, um, you know, where they're all grinding at a different pace. That was different. Um, I don't know. I, I'd be curious. I, the one thing is, I mean, he is a, he was a better college coach than, than the guys we're talking about. I don't know, again, I'm not, I'm not putting Saban in that group, but I'm talking about whether it's, whether it's Bobby Petrino, uh, certainly Lou Holtz or Steve Spurrier. Uh, Urban Meyer to me was a better college coach than them. I wouldn't write it off his chances. Um, I think what you're talking about is a guy who has three national title rings and why you'd say, okay, uh, clearly he has a good eye for talent. I think there's something to be said for that. I do think that, you know, he's a, he was a really good recruiter. Well, recruiting isn't just wooing. It's it's identifying players. And so I, I don't think you can write that part off. But I, I definitely would be very curious. I'd be more curious to see Urban Meyer in the NFL than I would to see him, let's say, a year from now in Austin, Texas or something. You know, just just from a curiosity standpoint. By the way, I think it's very weird that in the NFL they can just talk open. Like Jerry Jones is just openly talking about Urban Meyer as a candidate for for a job that's not even open. You don't yet. have to worry about recru- uh, recruits signing on Wednesday, Stu. That's true. I mean, there's no there's there's no rules against it. I so I mean I don't think he could do that about a current NFL coach certainly, but uh, he could talk all he wants. About I mean, in the NFL, uh, I would be surprised. In the NFL guys, Stu, yeah, Stu, Stu, and the NFL guys get fired after a year. You get two years in college, and that seems extreme. In the NFL, it's not like shocking. You know, the Cardinals ran a guy out after one year. I feel like the Browns and and Forty Niners have done that. You know, numerous times too. So I think it's just. It's so much more of a business. I mean, college athletics is obviously a business more than the NCAA would like to admit it. Um, the NFL is a, is very much a bottom line business and a cutthroat business like that. And that's why I think you have those discussions. And I think that's why um, no AD, ADs can have egos. No AD has the ego like Jerry Jones has the ego. He sees himself as a star. I don't know of any AD who really, really fancies himself that way. Or herself that way. By the way, Jerry Jones did have a couple comments that were kind of dismissive of Urban. First comment, and this was on a radio show. He's very complimentary of Lincoln Riley and Matt Rule, but then he pointed out, quote, college coaches have the lowest percentage rate of success taking over as NFL head coaches, adding that the Cowboys went 1-15 in in Jimmy Johnson's first season. College coaches spend Sundays working. In many cases, they aren't that familiar with NFL personnel. Now, that's a big deal. You pay a price for somebody to get up to date that hasn't spent the prior months or years in the NFL. So... That part doesn't really sound like somebody who's going to hire over. But I also realize that Jerry Jones says one thing one week and then does something different the next. Uh, speaking of recruiting, this is early signing period Wednesday. It's, I think, the third year of this, and it still sneaks up on me every year. It, it, it's, uh, it's different than when it, was, when it was the only date was in February and you had like two months to totally gear up for the recruiting side of things. If you're not somebody who's a recruiting junkie, all of a sudden – you turn around and this Wednesday, right after the Heisman, right, you know, teams still feels like they just finished their regular season. Uh, it's signing day. Guys are going to sign on the dotted line. What's, what are you uh, looking for? What stories are you most interested in Wednesday? You know, you want to see how well uh, Clemson will close, I think. And again, close is a little bit 
of a hedge because as we know, there'll be probably 10, 15% of top kids who will sign uh, six weeks from now or whatever early February is. Uh, but most of the top kids have already committed. Now there is two big battles that Clemson is in the middle of for top 10 players. One is Justin Flo, who's from out here in California. Uh, Oregon's in the middle of it. Clemson's in the middle of it. A lot of people were assuming Clemson. Uh, USC, I guess, has a shot. And then there's Jordan Birch, who is the top uh, top edge rusher who is from South Carolina. Clemson's in the middle of that. LSU is in the middle of that. And I believe South Carolina is still involved. So, you know, if Jordan Birch ends up signing with Clemson, They've already got commitments from the number one defensive tackle as well as another defensive end, Miles Murphy. One kid's from Maryland, one kid's from Georgia. So I think, you know, to see how well Clemson closes, I think will be noteworthy is also to see what kind of momentum LSU gets. I think they're ranked third. And if they get uh, Jordan Birch, I would assume they would climb up uh, a little higher as well. So there's some some big ticket items that are still out there that I think a lot of, a lot of people are going to be really paying attention to as far as i can tell recently so clemson has six five stars committed right now if they were to add two more and then finish with eight five stars that i believe would be a two four seven record maybe somebody will correct me georgia had seven a couple years ago um yeah it's been very interesting because clemson was not a team that you would necessarily even as they started this run of playoff appearances and national titles was not a team that was finishing number one or close to number one often they sign smaller classes so this is far and away at least on in terms of recruiting rankings the best class they've signed under Dabo, and that's well they also hadn't been all they also keep in mind they had been very regionalized till last year when they started going you know really getting on the planes and going somewhere and so they have the number one uh, quarterback recruit in the country who's also a Southern California kid, DJ Uyanga Lele, who has been committed to them for a while. And he's a California kid, Justin Flo, California kid. So they are, I think that is something that's added to to what Dabo's doing there. They've also gotten into Florida. I mean, Demarcus Bowman's a guy from Lakeland. That's a place where a lot of times those kids have gone to Florida and I think he's, you know, he's a five-star running back. That's a kid who's, t- who's headed to Clemson now. Yeah, I mean, I think the the instability at USC, um, I think Oregon probably is the program that's taking the most advantage of it. But you could say Clemson is mm-hmm. number two, which you, you'd be surprised. I mean, that's surprising to me that a team clear on the other side of the country is taking advantage and getting some of these kids from Southern California. Uh, but that has been the case with some of these elite kids. Speaking of USC, uh, like I said, because of the year of uncertainty with Clay Helton, their recruiting this path in this cycle has been a disaster, at least to this point. Um, you have to scroll all the way down on 247 to number 80 to find USC with their 10 commits, 80 in the country. Oh, the only 11th in the Pac-12 above one just above Utah. A couple of schools that are listed just above who, just above who, just above Utah. Who? Utah's pretty good. Utah, by the way. pretty good team, but right now 81st in the country. Yeah. But here are some of the teams. And granted, the bigger your class, the, the better you're going to do in this. Here are some of the teams that are currently ranked higher than USC in recruiting: Georgia State, NIU, Toledo, Miami of Ohio, Troy. 
Bowling Green, Western Michigan, and Louisiana. Uh, what's now USC is a program that usually closes strong. So what's realistic here? Like how how I don't think they're going to go from number eighty to number five in the country. But what's the realistic scenario here for them closing? To crack the top 50. They're not going to sign many more kids. That's the thing. Like almost everybody else you're talking about has 20 kids, 23 kids. So I think that's part of it. I'm like going through the rankings and define. I think the team with the smallest number of commits in the top 40 is TCU with 13. Can they? So you think they'll add a bunch of guys between this signing day and early February? USC. Yeah. USC doesn't have a lot of room. And one thing, look, this I think is probably a credit to Clay Helton. He's not running guys off necessarily to create space where some other places might have done that. So I don't think this is going to be a small class. And I'm not saying it doesn't, it, it, it won't matter that these are, you know, we'll see how much it matters. Like last year was not a great recruiting class on paper for USC. But if you look at what they actually have, if you talk to play, you know, coaches who are like, oh, Keaton Slovis was a three-star guy. Keaton Slovis should have been a five-star guy if you were to re-rank them now, right? Some of the receivers they got would have been higher ranked, I think, after people have seen them. So again, I'm not, I am not trying to dismiss that they are, uh, as you said, 80th below you know, it's crazy. They're 80th below uh, some of those schools. And it's not like a bunch of those schools have have much else. I mean, what's what's interesting to me here is that USC, of those, to me, what's probably more of a concern that they only have 10 recruits is that one of them, um, a guard, Jonah Monheim, is the only one who's, who's above a three-star. Isn't that crazy? So, this is a program that has for many, many years signed – five stars or four stars and five stars um just a couple years ago so this is the 2018 class usc was number four in the country four five stars 13 four stars that was included um amon ross and brown try to look for jt daniels you know some of the most highly ranked guys in the country we're talking about number 80 that's insane to me yeah, well, look, that's what happens when you've had three years in a row where your head coach has been on the hot seat, especially a full year of it. I'd, I would not be surprised if they were to pull a couple of big kids. Also, L.A. kids a lot of times uh, are the or Southern California kids. They let the process play out a little later. And I always would say I don't even have to know who the kid is. If it's signing day and it's a Southern California kid and he's sitting there with a hat of USC, a hat of Auburn, and a hat of Texas – I'm I'm betting that he's probably going to pick the USC hat. I mean, there's just a pull there that I think matters. And again, the, a lot of times these kids commit late. So there's a really good receiver out here is from Corona, which cranks out, you know, that, that area cranks out players. Gary Bryant Jr., I would suspect he will be the highest. You know, he's a top 50 player. I could see him committing there. Um you know, there's a few other guys that I think are still out there that they're in the middle of. So I, I could see them finishing in the top 50, but compared to where they used to be, whoa, that's different. I know they're waiting. So the U.S. Army All-American game in San Antonio is in early January, and that was traditionally some, an event where a whole bunch of kids announced their commitments. Now they don't get as many of those because of early signing period, but I know USC is waiting on a couple guys that are playing in that game. What do you say we get to the mailbag? 
Let's do it. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Now, I get a kick out of this, Bruce. You are going to be the sideline reporter this year for the Red Box Bowl. I say this year. You have been for a couple of years. You last week hosted a reception or emceed a reception for Justin Wilcox and Lovey Smith uh, for this Cal-Illinois mm-hmm. game. Well, guess what? We have both a Cal and an Illinois question this week. You ready? Wow. How did uh, how did you make that happen, Stu? I just I willed it to happen. No, I... I uh, I opened the inbox and I found one of just was I was like oh well we should definitely do these because Bruce just spent time with both of their head coaches. Okay, first up, Michael Johnson. I've been a subscriber to the Athletic ever since Stu joined and have gifted subscriptions to a few others. Great work across the platforms. Thank you so much, Michael. And uh, he just planted a good idea. If you're looking for last minute holiday gifts for your friends who are sports fans, go to theathletic.com/gift. I'm a longtime Illinois fan. And old enough to remember when Wisconsin was a doormat to the Illini in the 80s. Given the advantages of the Chicago market with recruits and donors, Illinois should be a better, more sustained program. I was trying to think of other Power 5 pariah programs that have built-in advantages but rarely achieved them, like Missouri, Arizona State, UNC, Colorado, Texas A&M, UCLA, and Rutgers. What do you guys think? Is Illinois, Bruce, like a sleeping giant type program? Uh... No, I don't think it is because, I mean, I just feel like a couple things. Illinois has, if you look at some of the greatest players in the history of the sport, they're Illinois legends. Red Grange, Dick Butkus. I mean, it's it's not lacking for, for star power or history. Um, I don't know. I mean, you could say, if, if you're going to say Illinois is a sleeping giant, you could probably say that about a lot of places, I think. So I don't want to go all the way there. I do think from t- spending some time with Lovey Smith last week, uh, he feels like they next year's team is supposed to be the one that really he felt it was going to break through. I don't want to say he, he was saying they're a year ahead of schedule, but it's along those lines. Um, I just don't know how much better they get. I mean, I don't look at this and say, okay, what what what, what Wisconsin is now, what they were under Barry Alvarez and under Brett Bielema, I mean, that's too big of a leap for me to look at this Illinois group and say that. I just just don't get that feeling. I could be wrong, but I don't get that feeling. Well, I think he means more just in general. Like, why aren't they a Lovey Smith or not? Why aren't they a better program given everything he said? Proximity to the Chicago market, recruiting and TV market, history. I mean, isn't like isn't Madison Madison feels like about as close to Chicago as Champaign. Yeah, I've done I that drive from Chicago this, to Champaign. It. It's not pretty. It's yeah, it's like it, to me. It's not. I get it. You're the state school, but I don't know if it if it resonates. I mean, look, I don't know. Notre Dame is in there. A lot of other places feel like they. Iowa certainly gets in there. I don't. I don't know if I see it as as something where you're going to be able to go in there and dominate. I just it just hasn't happened. I just don't see it happening. Okay, um, I really wish this person had given us the phonetic spelling. Rofel Josem, with 16 <laughs> likely returning starters, a healthy Chase Garbers, and a likely easier-than-normal schedule, will 2020 finally be the year Cal breaks through and wins 10 or more games? Um, I, I didn't fact-check that 16 likely returning starters. I know that several of the ones that won't be returning are Evan Weaver. They're all everything linebacker. I think their entire star secondary, right, or seniors. Um, mm-hmm. That being said, 
a healthy Chase Garbers. Maybe they finally have a above average offense. Um, they did just lose their OC. Um, which which FCS schools he did he take? Bo Baldwin. I know, but which job did he take? A Cal Poly. Cal Poly. Bo Baldwin took the uh, head coaching job at Cal Poly. I think they'll. I think they're heading in the right direction under Wilcox. I think they could have had a much better record this year if Garbers didn't get hurt because they were four uh, zero and looking pretty good. And then he got hurt, and the offense just went was garbage again. Ten, 10 or more games—that's a—that's a tall ask. Uh, but I'll say um, they were a seven and five team this year. I think they'll be better than that in twenty twenty. I don't know. It depends. They're, they're, you're right. They are losing some really good players on the back end of that defense. That's the part would give me a little pause. I I kind of want to see who, who Justin Wilcox is going to hire to run the offense because. It was interesting. 2016, they had a top 10 offense. That was Sonny Dykes' last year. And they fire him. And then Justin Wilcox comes in. And I think you and I both agree he's done a terrific job there, especially on the defensive side of the ball. They got to get a lot better on offense in there if they're going to get to where, you know, our, uh, where the, where, um, who asked this question again? The guy whose name I can't pronounce. Okay. Well, yeah, to where if they're going to get to ten wins, I mean, you got to get a lot better on offense, and we'll see. I mean, they they need better skill guys around Chase Garbers as well. Um, but look, he's a sophomore. I thought he, I think there were six and one in games he finished, which is a pretty good stat. Uh, now, certainly, again, a lot of that had to do with how good they are on defense. But I think as long as Justin Wilcox is there with that defensive staff in place, they're going to be pretty formidable. I think they've shown that they can develop players. And that's a big positive. So, yes, I think they'll get better. I don't know if they'll get that much better unless the offense takes a huge leap forward. Andrew Burnett in Scottsdale, Virginia, Bruce, is going to give you a platform right now to go on one of your favorite annual rants. Dear Bruce, this holiday season, what words of wisdom do you have for those who argue there are too many bowl games? Love the show. Keep up the good work. (laughs) Yeah, I I can't I can't get it. Like if you don't if you're ranting about there are too many bowl games, you're just not a big college football fan. You you'd like to say you are, but you're really not. So, we don't need <laughs> you. just just go just I, I'm sorry. Like if you're complaining about it, um you know, like I I was watching something and it was like it might have been on the Heisman and they were just scrolling stuff underneath about the games and it was like wow we got bowl games coming up this week and I'm excited about it I mean I'm excited to go like I'm thinking about going to Vegas just to see Washington Boise State and that's a really good matchup and um, obviously it's Chris Peterson's you know with the news with him moving on and Jimmy Lake taking over there's some some uh, little added intrigue in that game but I don't know. I, I just to me, what's great about this about these bowl games is it's a chance for some of these other programs that, unless you're watching Tuesday night Mac football, and you should, but unless you are, um, you you know these guys deserve to get on the big stage a little bit, and they deserve the, some of the spotlight. And I think these these bowl games serve a good purpose for that. You're really thinking about uh, doing a little hopscotch to go see a Vegas Bowl. I am, yeah, yeah. Okay, I mean, it's. I agree, it's a good matchup. Um, also, I would say to the people who say there are too many bowl games, nobody is forcing you to watch all of them. Uh, I'm not even sure it is possible to watch all of them, but I bet you some of the people who are complaining about it 
will find themselves in front of the TV. Uh, it's it's Tuesday. It's Christmas Eve. Oh, the Hawaii Bowl is on. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Let me let me check that out. I think this year's bowl schedule is the weirdest I've ever seen because you know where there was a revolt against the, the when they tried to do the semis on New Year's Eve. People hated it. Uh, you remember we had Bill Hancock on here the morning, the Monday morning after to mm-hmm. try to like justify it, and even he seemed like he was uh, struggling. Uh, but they so they ended up in, in um, their alternative to that was to move them the years where it's not Rose Bowl Sugar Bowl, which is New Year's Day uh, semifinals, move it to the last Saturday before New Year's. So this year's the earliest it's been yet. It's December twenty eighth. That's only a week into bowl season. So most of the bowls this year are after that. So you get the you get the bowls you get the playoff bowls on the twenty eighth. Then Monday, December thirtieth, which I assume is a regular workday for most people. I'm not a normal person, but I think most people that's a regular workday. Yet twelve thirty p.m. Monday, December thirtieth, we've got Western Western Kentucky against uh, Western Michigan in the first responders bowl, and then Louisville, Mississippi State in the Music City Bowl, and it continues like that for several days. Four on Monday, the thirtieth. Five on the thirty first. Only four on New Year's Day, which is a little disappointing. Then you've got on Thursday, January 2nd, the Birmingham Bowl and the Gator Bowl. And it continues like that through Monday the 6th. Um, yeah, you don't have to. If you don't like them, you don't have to watch them. That's that's as simple as that. Here's a semi-related question. Uh, Blaine from Virginia is fired up. I'm stunned. Stu thinks it's inevitable college football will have an eight-team playoff. College football has the greatest regular season in sports. You could see an eight and I guess he means in an 18 playoff. You could see an 8 no SEC team end the season by Vanderbilt, Furman, loss, loss, and make the playoff. How do you get 80,000 fans to show up if individual games mean nothing and half the schedule is cream puffs? On-campus quarterfinal games and a blizzard during finals, that's worse than all online classes. Uh, Blaine, I'm not necessarily sure I, I, gr- I want an 18 playoff. I definitely didn't want one this year, but I do think it's inevitable because I think much like you could see the writing on the wall for the BCS years before it went away. Um, I think that's what's happening here. Um, and it's in part because I think when the five power conferences signed on for this, they didn't envision that the same conference or conferences would get left out every year. So if you're the Pac-12, it's in your best interest to go to an 18 playoff that guarantees a spot for your champion every year. If you're the group of five, obviously an 18 playoff would be better. Because I think there'll be an automatic bid for those conferences because politically it would not go well for the Power Five if they excluded them. Uh, it's about that. I don't think it's about you need four more teams to determine who the national champion is. The four best team or the national champion is one of those four best teams every year. Um, it's it's really it's about access. It's about every conference and every part of the country wanting to feel included. In what is now a much bigger event, um, in an event that is now completely overshadowed, just as Nick Saban predicted every other bowl game. All right. Well, uh, we're going to do an Audible Extra this week, aren't we, Stu? Because we've got a bunch of games to break down. Yes. It's uh, Speaking of those quote-unquote too many bowl games, we'll be uh, making some picks for some of them on our episode later this week. Yes. All right. As always, you can send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And we will see you next time. If you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Leave us a review and a rating if you could, too. It helps us get the word out. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on Spotify or Apple Music. Follow me on Twitter at SLMandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link, theathletic.com slash theaudible. That's 40% off your subscription to The Athletic. We'll find a way to adrenaline. It doesn't matter what it takes. The dumbest things cause the greatest thrill.